0: All right, welcome to Sacktown Talks. Today we have a very special guest, Nick Sanders with the Sutton Law Firm. We're going to talk a little political law uh, initiatives, uh, exciting stuff here. Well, Nick, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chair. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you again. You know, I really was hoping you were going to have this really big, long, grizzly beard. Um, You know, a lot of people want beards, um, but you're keeping yours pretty neat. It's looking good.
1: I trimmed it just for you.
0: Yeah. Uh, how do you wear a mask with that beard?
1: Uh, not safely, I believe. Really? I think that it falls outside of the, the regulations that the CDC has put forward, but I don't know.
0: Yeah, you know, I tried for a while and I just kept touching my face and I was like, I guess that's not what you're supposed to do. So I just kind of, I bailed on it, but. On the beard entirely? Yeah. You're, Can you grow a beard? I don't know. I don't, see that's one of the questions <laughs> I wanted to answer and, you know, I don't think I'll ever know. But yeah, I'm fine fine with that. Next quarantine, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Well, Nick, thanks for joining us. Uh, You know, uh, long time no see. A lot's going on uh, or not going on because of the uh, shutdown and kind of what are the things you're working on? How's your work changed uh, since the shutdown? It's a little bit slower. You know, you, you would anticipate that people kind of get back
1: on their heels a little bit while the shelter in place plays out. Um, But we've been getting some interesting questions because, you know, politics doesn't stop. Um, People are trying to figure out how to deal with shelter in place, um, with staying at home and continuing to work, do the work that they need to do. Uh, Sometimes that, you know, takes the form of figuring out how to properly do Zoom fundraisers. Other times it's the panic calls about initiatives, how they're how they're going to get them on the ballot. Right. But they're, they've become interesting questions. I'll say that it's uh, definitely not the normal run of the mill type questions that that we deal with on a day to day basis.
0: A a new paradigm. Uh, you know, can you briefly kind of, for those not familiar with political law, can you just give us a little background on kind of what political law law is and kind of how you got into it? Sure.
1: Um, political election law, um, kind of synonyms for the same thing. Uh, We deal in the laws that allow people to get on the ballot and the dealing with county votes and how you deal with voting and and voter access, ballot access, things like that. Um, The political law aspect, I think, is more compliance with the rules around both lobbying and engaging in politics. So uh, as you are well aware, as most people I think who listen to the podcast are well aware, there's a a Byzantine system of laws in place if you want to actually engage in political speech. That's our specialty. Um, That's the specialty of any of the political law firms around Sacramento. Uh,
0: You know, kind of an interesting time here. Uh, Legislature just reconvened yesterday uh, for the first time in a while. And, you know, there's this big kind of argument between the Senate and the Assembly kind of about this remote voting um, issue, you know, whether that's constitutional or not. Uh, it looks kind of like the Senate and the Assembly attorneys have a different, um, you know, view on this. You know, are you familiar with this issue and kind of, you know, what what do you think the the issue there is with remote voting and the legislature?
1: Yeah, so it, it all comes from it's kind of the attendance requirement is what it's called, Um both houses of the legislature have to, the public has to be allowed to participate in hearings, to attend hearings. Uh, and this, when the, either chamber looked at the law, the Senate determined that attendance is not physical attendance. They don't have to be physically in the building, in the hearing room, standing up at the podium, speaking directly to legislators. And the assembly has taken the opposite position. Um, if you talk to people in either house, you know lawyers in in the assembly and the Senate uh I think they generally agree that the the issue itself is theirs to decide um, I think that the assembly has acted with a little more caution um, you know the 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 real threat is a lawsuit from the public, and you know i, I I've heard that Charles T. Munger is one of the people who has threatened to sue if the legislature doesn't convene in person. So the assembly decided to take the position that they wanted to avoid that lawsuit altogether.
0: Right.
1: Now, when you get, you know, this is a little legalistic, but there is a doctrine in jurisprudence called the political question doctrine. And, you know, Jerry, you're a lawyer, you've heard this one before, but essentially the courts in certain situations throw up their hands and say, it's not our job to deal with this. This is a political question. And I, you know, I have heard from several lawyers in the building and, you know, I, I tend to agree that a court would probably throw up its hand and say, the legislature gets to decide what it means to attend a hearing. Um, yeah, through,
0: a, through their assembly rules. Absolutely. Joint roles. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Right. There'd be some deference there, but you know, it's, it's, a lawsuit is never something you can predict 100% of the time, right? You know, trial judges will do what trial judges want to do and you don't if you were the legislature you don't want your legislation tied up with lawsuits. You know, there's there's a question of anything that's passed without adhering to the attendance requirement, you know, is that going to be overturned by a court? Um, and even that still remains, right? The assembly is having session, but they've decided to let a certain number of people into hearings. If you let you know five people into the hearing, have you met the attendance requirement? I don't know. Do you have to allow everyone into the hearing? Um, and of course, all the assembly bills that are passed, even with people attending the hearings, so that it has to go through the Senate itself. So if the Senate, the Senate also, so if the Senate is doing things remotely and it is not meeting the attendance requirement. Well, does that throw the assembly bills also into question?
0: So, yeah, Several I, questions. It'll be I interesting, I guess, next few months to see how this plays out. Um, Definitely. You know, something else that's going on right now is uh, November elections coming up. Um, you know, in California, we have direct democracy with the initiative process. Um, a great process. Kind of uh, hoping to run down kind of the initiative process with you and kind of, you know, what initiatives um have have I guess met the November uh, ballot deadline? Which ones are are kind of pending? Um, yeah, you know, sure. sure. Yeah. Technically, there's there's only one
1: measure on the ballot. It's a referendum uh, on on cash bail uh, that was done a while back, passed, went through the the process, and is definitely on the ballot. There are four. The way that this works is, um, you know, as you know. You you go out as a proponent, you have an idea, you want to pass a law, you hand it to the Attorney General. The Attorney General does his, his analysis, decides what the title of your initiative will be, what the summary of the, the provisions are, sends it back to you, and you can take the language of your law that you've written, you can take the title and summary that the Attorney General has produced, and you can put it on a petition, and you can send it around and gather a lot of signatures, you know, for a constitutional amendment, it's almost a million. I think it's 997,000 this year for uh, just a normal law, just on the books and some sort of code. It's something like six hundred and twenty-five, 623,000 signatures that you need in order to qualify. Um, so many people, many groups have gone out and gathered signatures uh, or are gathering signatures at this time. Um, four of them have submitted their signatures and they're what's called eligible to qualify for the ballot. And on June 25th, the AG will, the secretary of state, the AG will give their stamp of approval and they will appear on the ballot. Um, so those four right now that are going to appear on the ballot, um, but aren't technically there yet because of the deadlines are the criminal sentencing, parole, and data collection, DNA collection, um, Bill that's going to kind of roll back some of the criminal justice measures that were passed in 2018. Uh, the original split role initiative that um, you know I, this is a while back, but the uh, the CTA and, and a number of other folks who are seeking to to split the property tax rolls between uh, personal property and business properties, uh, they had put forward an initiative an initiative last year and pursued signatures got the number of signatures turned them in and then they decided to do it all over again with certain new thresholds so that original one that they submitted is eligible and will appear on the ballot um or at least at this time will appear on the ballot um if it's not withdrawn by june 25th uh and then uh the other, you know, we'll get into it, but the other, they submitted signatures last month. Um, so there may be two split rule measures on the ballot, but, you know, they may withdraw the original one. Oh, interesting. The third initiative that's eligible that will, appear on, that will probably appear on ballot, um, Prop 10, all over again. This is allowing local jurisdictions to impose their own rent control measures, um, whether or not they're a charter city. Uh, it's Michael Weinstein uh, tried this last election cycle, uh, it did not pass, and he's trying it all over again. Uh, the, the fourth one is uh, about property tax base transferring for those above 55 years of age. Um, it basically makes it easier for older folks to move to a new house without incurring a larger property tax liability. You know something the house that they bought in the the sixties you know they don't pay much in property tax. well, if they were to move to a smaller house, if they were to downsize, they were probably going to be paying more in property taxes and if they're on a fixed income, that makes a difficult decision to make right um, but that that initiative would make would allow them to transfer their current property taxes to a new home
0: okay, so basically, you said one has officially i guess qualified as on the ballot, and there's four. Kind of pending certification right now they, they will qualify
1: it's what's called eligible so the the secretary of state has to give a stamp of approval on them and that occurs on june 25th but those four that i just mentioned they have submitted enough signatures to qualify for the november ballot so okay. they will be on the ballot and unless then, guess, they're pulled
0: back Yeah, you know, i think i saw in the news today there was one dealing with privacy or you know there's a couple of initiatives people are still turning signatures in um yeah you know kind of ha- so they're what are, what's the path for those to get on the November, November ballot?
1: So there are three that signatures have been submitted already. Um, so right now, what you do is when you submit your signatures in each county, you gathered your petitions and you go deliver a bunch of boxes to the registrar of voters. And each county's registrars counts up their county signatures and sends them up to the Secretary of State. So three initiatives have had those signatures submitted to the county registrars of voters. The first one is the uh, AB5 Replacement. That's the you know Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart um, coalition, which is seeking to create a new classification for app-based workers who do driving deliveries, that sort of thing.
0: Right. Um,
1: so that is currently being counted. Um, I have heard that they are optimistic with what they've submitted. They've submitted quite a few. Um, the the second initiative that's been submitted is the the kind of resubmission of that split roll tax that i talked about earlier um okay it's thought that if this one qualifies then the previous one will be withdrawn um i haven't heard lately whether or not that's still under consideration but the resubmission which is being counted right now it you know raises the the threshold from two million to three million Um, if you are under 3 million under this resubmitted one, then, then your property taxes are not changed to current value. Um, give some other, uh, narrows the exceptions for small businesses who own property and have fewer than 50 employees. Um, so there are additional qualifications if you want to qualify for that exemption. And, um, it sets kind of specific allocations to schools and community colleges. So it's, it's different, um, raises a threshold in one case, makes it more difficult to qualify for exemption in another puts different allocations. You know, it's the typical horse trading that you would see coming up with legislative language. It's just unique in this situation that they have already submitted, I I believe it was 1.7 million signatures. Wow. Um, and then did it all over again. Um, so that one is also being counted. The third one, you know, I'm not going to touch the politics of it. It's constantly being talked about, but it's the dia- one of the dialysis measures uh, to institute new regulations into dialysis. That's also being currently counted. So those are the people who have gathered enough signatures and are going to qualify. Uh, there are also five that you know we'll, we'll call them potential initiatives, um, initiatives that sub- that got their title and summary, went out there, are gathering signatures, and at some point during the process, told the Secretary of State, we've gathered at least 25% of the signatures necessary to qualify our initiative. This is a new requirement that came in about four years ago. Essentially what happens is, once you reach that 25% threshold, uh, you trigger legislative hearings, um, which allows the legislature to speak with the proponents, really engage them in depth and come up with some sort of negotiated settlement to avoid having an initiative go on the ballot. You know, if they can do it through the normal legislative process in the, in the building, then they don't need to go to the ballot box. Um, it was one of the attempts to curb the, the number of initiatives on the ballot. Because I think, what was it, two or four years ago, we had what, 20-something initiatives on the ballot at the statewide level. It was, it was just getting to be a lot
0: Right. But so, twenty-five percent threshold is that just self-certified, or is there some sort of vetting by the county to to see you're actually at that that number? Essentially, self-certified. Yeah.
1: Okay. You just say we got it, and we're we're going forward. We need a hearing.
0: Um, is there any way to evaluate kind of where a campaign is, or kind of you know measure if one has a certain number of signatures or not?
1: From the outside, yeah. Only
0: checking in with the campaign
1: itself. Um, I, mean, I think that campaigns are generally straightforward when it comes to the signatures that they're gathering. Um, if they're trying to raise money, they don't want to be seen out there giving false information to the
0: public. Right. Uh, so you, you can get a general sense of where they're at if, if they are being forthcoming about. With, with the shelter-in-place orders, you know, you kind of heard signature gathering came to a halt. Um, yeah. Are you still hearing or seeing that, you know, signature gatherings are occurring right now throughout the state? Uh,
1: there are some ways that people are gathering signatures. Um, you know, we we have dealt in the past with kind of unique methods when to, to get out there and get signatures. Now it's required. Um, we've as a firm, we've kind of talked about this, kicked it back and forth. It's always been kind of a fun mind experiment you know what would happen if you couldn't go out there and gather signatures um right back you know back in the 70s 80s what's
0: that who thought that would actually happen i
1: know exactly yeah back in the 70s and 80s they they there were several campaigns that actually experimented with mailing petitions to voters um you know especially now campaigns have very advanced voter rolls where they know who their supporters are so you know if you a petition, it's got one or two signatures on it, you put it in the mail, you send it to the people who support it, you give them a self-addressed stamped envelope, and they send it back. Um, you know, I heard from a, a consultant recently who was active in environmental movements in the 70s, um, and they he said that they did that pretty regularly. Um, it was It is very expensive to do this, right? Printing petitions in general, especially at the statewide level. There's there's a lot of petitions you're going to have to print if you're only allowing one or two signature blocks. Um, and then you have to give them a self-addressed stamped envelope. And then you have to track them. Uh, if you are just blanket bombing all sorts of voters with that sort of information, it's just not cost-effective.
0: Do you need to have uh, a wet signature or could you do an email campaign and have people scan signatures in? or?
1: That is... Uh, that is uh, near and dear to my heart. There was an initiative which was seeking to qualify for the November 2020 ballot uh, that would allow electronic signatures on initiative petitions, wow. and it failed
0: yesterday. That's too bad. So, the DocuSign. Yes. Wow, yes. That'd be amazing. And I was really hoping for that. That was... Uh, hundred initiatives you know, every... <laughs> yeah. A Twitter campaign. <laughs> Wow, Steve
1: Church, Steve Churchwell, um, one of the attorneys, one of the political law attorneys in Sacramento. He uh, litigated this issue a decade ago. I want to say, maybe, maybe a little less, a little more than that. Um, he was seeking to try to figure out how to qualify using electronic signatures. There was this um, technology where you, I think that they had created it for this for this purpose, but it was, you know, an iPad, the Signature Gather. Could go around or you know you could give it to someone, and if they signed it with the iPad, there was a machine that would recreate the signature as they sign it onto a petition using a using a pen held by this robotic arm oh wow in some remote location um and the the court did not believe that that was an appropriate signature for submission
0: right so this
1: initiative would have
0: was the yeah, I guess kind of, you know, you were saying earlier that, you know, the signatures get turned into the county where they were collected. Uh kind of what happens in a situation where you're a voter uh signing a petition in a different county than you're registered to vote in, um is that not counted or, you know, can they verify you in another county?
1: So you would have to or you would have to submit the petition in the county where the voter is registered. So each the reason that the registrar voters does it is that they verify that the they each registrar holds their county's voter rolls and that registrar has to match the signature in their petition from their county with their voter rolls to make sure that it's the same person so what would happen is this remote location would sort between which county you were in so sacramento county jerry you're you're signing over there in sacramento county you would transmit it to a machine in i don't know la county but it would be in a stack of petitions in destined for the Sacramento County registrar.
0: Okay. Interesting. But like let's say I took a trip to LA and I signed a petition while I was in LA and they, would that count or? No, you would. Yeah. The, it would not count if it was submitted to the LA registrar. But okay, was, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, kind of like takes me to my, my next question about, you know, how do they verify these signatures? Kind of what are the different methods of verifying that and kind of, in your opinion if you're running a campaign what what method would you go with sure there's uh well first what what actually
1: happens on the ground um signature you know there's a lot of talk about how expensive signature gathering is um signature gathering firms especially the good ones are very adept at taking in petitions and verifying the signatures themselves Um, you know, it used to be, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you could guess at a validity rate of, you know, 70%. You would hope for that. Um, you would be going through voter, you know, trying to go through voter rolls, trying to check things off, making sure the duplicates aren't in the the petitions and hoping for that 70%. Now, you know, especially if you're talking about a local initiative, they are very high. Um. Almost exact in a lot of cases um, in smaller jurisdictions so what will happen is these signature gathering firms get the voter rolls you know they don't they don't have the signatures they don't have individual signatures but they know who are registered voters and they know where their address is and so they will look at the petitions and see this person is a registered voter or this person isn't a registered voter and if they're not a registered voter they cross them out. Um, they also go through and make sure that there are no duplicates in the petitions, cross those out, Uh, and then what they're left with is a pool of what they believe are valid signatures to submit to the the county. When it gets to the county, uh, the registrar, well, first, the registrar does what's called a raw count, where they take out the petitions, literally count the number of signatures, and if it's at least the number necessary to qualify, then they pass it on to actual verification. Now,
0: is this a machine count, or is this you know people physically you know counting one, two?
1: People physically counting. Now we always recommend when we when we're turning in petitions, we often submit petitions on behalf of our clients. Um, when we submit petitions and signature gathering firms will do this too, you group them, right? If you have a petition that has twenty signature blocks and they're all filled out. You rub, you rubber band all those together. You rubber band all the ones that have 19 signatures. You rubber band all the ones that have 18 signatures, et cetera. Okay. So when the registrar gets it, they kind of spot check. They make sure that it's there, and then they can count it real quickly. It's basic arithmetic rather than going through and actually counting each one with ordinal numbers.
0: Um. So kind of, you know, looking at the Secretary of State's website, they have uh, some recommended dates for if you're, you know, having an initiative and you're, you know, starting si- signatures in, you know, they had this like April 21st date um, yeah. for initiatives to get their signatures in. Is that a hard date or, you know, can you still qualify after that, after turning your signatures in after that April 21 date?
1: Sure. That, that April 21 date is definitely why it's on the top of everyone's mind right now. You've seen a lot of articles come out and see people talking about it. Uh, it is not a hard date, um, but it is a good recommendation. Uh, what happens is what I was describing that raw count, right, then it goes to the back and they actually verify each signature. Um, they have 30 days. Each registrar has 30 days. And this is this is business days, not calendar days, 30 business days. To go through and verify their petitions. Um, that doesn't count Memorial Day, which is coming up this month. Right. Um, doesn't count weekends. Uh, and it doesn't count other holidays that might come up. Or if there's a closure, especially for something like COVID, if there's a closure, well, it's not going to count. Um, wow. So the recommended date allows registrars that 30 business days. It allows them to gather it, gives them a little bit of wiggle room, and allows them to submit to the Secretary of State, and it gives the Secretary of State time to process all the information and put it in. Um, If everything were to work perfectly, which it never does, but if everything were to work perfectly, um, if the signature verification by the circulators was very good, if there were a ton of signatures if the registrar was able to do it quickly, you know you could see an initiative qualify if it were submitted as late as next week. You know, I believe that the the twenty the the thirty working days allowing the Secretary of State one day to process all the information would put it at the thirteenth
0: Wow, um, okay
1: but again that was that is everything working perfectly, that is everything being delivered on time that is everyone being able to get it done and you know, essentially, people waiting for their step in the process. Um, right. I would say at this point, if a if an initiative hasn't been submitted, there's a serious risk to not making it.
0: I know, like a lot of county courts, for example, are closed. Are a lot of these county election offices closed right now because of COVID? No, they're all open. Um,
1: I I have heard registrars talk about the difficulty of keeping them open, but they know that they have to be there counting signatures. So um, I'm trying to remember which. you know, there, there was a large county that we, we spoke with a registrar and essentially what they are doing is having part of their staff come in because signature verification is sitting in front of a computer. You know, these, these people who work at the registrar, they sit in front of a computer, they type in the name of the voter and their official voter registration signature pops up it's on the screen in front of them. And they look at the petition and they look at their screen and they see whether or not it matches. Right. Wow. And, and registrars, registrars go out of their way to try to let these things qualify. Right. Um, so they, you know, they look for indications. Well, if the J is the same and Jarrett, well, you know, it doesn't matter that there's three peaks rather than four or something like that in the signature. You know, they can they can look at this. This is their job. They can look at it and tell that it's there.
0: Are there any um, I don't know, legal actions, I guess, to challenge these signature gathering efforts saying, oh, you know, that's not a real signature? You know, are there, you know, methods where people engage a, a firm like yourselves to, you know, try to disqualify these signatures?
1: Not at this point in the process. Um, when we are challenging signatures, uh, that usually occurs with After the election, when we're doing vote by mail ballots or uh, provisional ballots, you know, looking at those, the same exact matching system, right? Um, But at this point, petitions that have been turned in are not public record. Um, We don't get to see them. The proponents wouldn't get to see them again unless they didn't qualify and they want to, and the proponents want to check. Mm -hmm. Um, They're just kept secret for the most part.
0: Well, well, I guess what if one does qualify, let's say one barely qualifies, um, mm-hmm. you know, have you ever seen a legal challenge, you know, basically demanding a recount or or kind of extra scrutiny like you would see in an election?
1: Uh, yes, but a court is very rarely going to allow that to go forward, uh, unless there can be proof of some sort of malfeasance. Um, it's going to be very difficult for an action to move forward against something that's qualified, and there, that that's not to say that it doesn't exist, right? There are, you know, there are cases where, especially at, a, at the local level, right? You only need a thousand signatures to qualify. Well, you know, some malfeasance is going to get you a lot longer way than it would at the state level. Um, so, if you have a circulator who's copying over signatures, for instance, then that's gonna, that's gonna push it. That's gonna push an initiative a lot further along than it would
0: at the state level. Yeah, I'm just kind of thinking like you know a county like LA County, if you know they have maybe you know a million signatures, they're looking at with all these different initiatives, mm-hmm. <laughs> it could be a pretty tedious task uh, yeah. to be going through those. So it is. Uh, yeah. I think I think the more likely action at this point is
1: not about qualification for this ballot. But um, one of the other legal issues is that if you, once you receive that title and summary I talked about earlier mm-hmm. uh, from the, from the attorney general, you have 180 days until that title and summary expires. Essentially it's gone. You got to resubmit. You got to go through the process again. Anything you've gathered is, is off to the wind. Um, you know, I haven't, we haven't thought this through extensively, so I can't give you the full legal bases, but that. 180 day requirement is now a little suspect. Um if the government is telling you that you can't go out and collect signatures, right? It's, you know, if the if they were to change that requirement to 8 days rather than 180 days, well a court would look at it and say that's ridiculous. You can't gather 997,000 signatures in 8 days. Right. Well, you know, if it's 180 days less 2 months of shutdown, Well, then a court might look at it and say, that's ridiculous. You can't expect people to gather signatures in that amount of time. Now, no one's filed that action. We haven't heard anyone wanting to file that action necessarily, but um, that is probably the most likely litigation that I can think of right now. So you're
0: talking about, you know, these pending measures that have reached the 25%, but are still, you know, kind of been shut down because the signature gatherings kind of paused that, you know, they might not be able to make 2022, um, because of the 180 day issue, but you know, they might right. get extensions. Is that kind of what you're saying? Right.
1: Yeah, that would be, you know, if I were counseling them, that would be what I would recommend is to try to get that extension. Right. Now, in a lot of cases, they already have the signatures, right? There, there are five, we, we got a little sidetrack, but there are five initiatives that have this 25%, right? There's um. Uh, there's the new privacy law, Alistair McTaggart um, right. has proposed a new law to increase digital privacy. Um. That one has a 25% percent has not qualified yet. There is the the, um, Center for Regenerative Medicine, California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, the the stem cell uh, research facility. They have a bond measure that uh, I have heard. It has enough signatures to qualify uh, for the ballot, but it wants a little extra kick, and it's trying to decide whether or not it wants to submit for November 2020. um interestingly that group has decided to post its petition online in order to get the extra signatures to push it kind of over the edge right um so right now if you were to go on the website you can print out their petition sign their petition and mail it in um that was another kind of one besides mailing out petitions individually you can also place it online right um they've decided to engage in that my understanding is that they they feel comfortable that they have this number of signatures that they need, but they want to kind of kick it up. Like I said, with the, with the split roll tax, they turned in 1.7 million, right? In a lot of cases, these initiatives will jack up their signature count to show a coalition of people behind them, not just the bare minimum to qualify an initiative. Um, So, you know, the other question is whether these initiatives do want to go forward. So two others are the, um, the the medical negligence cap raise and the plastics tax, right? These are two initiatives that kind of gathered a lot of attention when they were initially submitted. They've been out on the streets. Um, I know at least the, the medical negligence cap raise has said that it has enough signatures to qualify for the ballot. But both of those initiatives seem to have said they don't want to. They've looked, at the, they've looked at the situation, they've looked at what's going to be on November 2020, and they've said, we're just going to take a step back. Now is not the time. Right. Now, in a lot of cases, it's not about gathering signatures, right? It's a decision, well, especially for, let's say, the medical negligence tax or the medical negligence cap raise. They have to go out there and they have to raise money from plaintiff's lawyers, right? That's the group that's going to give them money. Well, right now, courts aren't open. Plaintiff's right. lawyers aren't in court. Now's not a great time for them to raise some money. Um, so they looked at the landscape. They said, this isn't our time to fight this fight. We'll wait. Um, and if they want to submit at the 180 days, if they want to submit later and qualify for 2022, they seem to have enough signatures to do that. The plastics tax, I haven't heard whether or not they have enough signatures, um, but they have also seemed to have decided that they don't want to qualify for the
0: November ballot. They're going to wait. What, how much, you know, you were talking about the mail-in and the costs, you know, what is the cost of a, of a campaign to get, you know, to qualify with paid signature gatherers you've seen this cycle? Quite
1: a lot. Um, You know, I don't think we've seen a per signature count, obviously in a while, right? It's been two months since we've dealt with this. Uh, It's felt like, several years, but um, I think the last, you know, we're talking seven to $12 per signature. Wow. I think, and if you're, you know, if you need 977,000 ballot signatures, but you want to turn in again, I'm going to keep using split roll as the example, just because that's the one that, you know, is was was recently turned in. Um, They submitted the 1.7 million twice. Well, you can do the math. Let's take the average, let's take ten dollars, one point seven, and then multiply it by two because they did two different signature gathering drives. It's a lot of money.
0: Right. And you know, uh so basically you're saying that they could have spent twenty million bucks qualifying this twice. Um, mm-hmm. you know, what you know, who are the groups behind uh, you know, putting that one on the ballot?
1: The for
0: split roll specifically, right?
1: That's uh California Teachers Association is is the main backers. Um A lot of the public sector unions, I I believe, are also heavily involved, Um, but uh, I know that CTA is the the biggest backer.
0: Oh, interesting. Going back on the, you know, signature counting, um, you know, there's two methods. There's the raw count and there's, you know, a percentage count. Could you kind of describe how that percentage um, count works and kind of when that's utilized?
1: Yeah, so... All the, the deadlines we're talking about now, this April 21st, uh, the mid-March, whatever, mid-May, whatever you want to call it, these are all based on the, what's called a random sample. Mm. Um, that is the default in all counties. Um, certain jurisdictions allow you to, to select, you know, San Diego City. If you submit a city initiative, you're allowed to select whether you want a full count or a random sample. But at the state level, when you're submitting an initiative, you put in to the counties, the counties take it in the back, and they take a percentage a small percentage of the initiative of the signatures and they go through and calculate the number of valid signatures of that sample and it's it's one to one right so if you need a hundred thousand in a certain county and they take a sample of you know three thousand and 90% 90% of that sample are valid signatures. Then they just extrapolate that out. They say you turned in 100, uh, 90% validity on our sample size, so we're going to say you turned in 90,000. Right? If an initiative on its random sample gets more than 110%, then it passes through. They, they, the registrars say we've done our random sample. You've hit 110%. You're good to go. Right? Um, but there is there are what's called penalties so we talked about the one-to-one um let's say you turned in your 90 percent, whatever um, they extrapolate that out but the biggest issue is duplicate signatures you know um it is so the odds of getting a duplicate signature in a, a very small Percentage of the signatures out there is pretty remote. So when a registrar sees a duplicate signature in their random sample, they apply a penalty Um, and You know right now, I think that the calculation has it about one a little over 1% of Your validity is knocked out. So if they're taking if they say you have a 90% percent validity well you just got knocked down to 88 point something percent because of the duplicate right it's it's a big number um so we talked about what happens if you get the 110 percent you move on you qualified you're good to go if you get below 95 percent you you don't qualify they say based on a random sample you don't qualify Um, in some cases low you know at a local level some local jurisdictions will allow you to appeal that and say we want a full count now. that's not that's not the case at the state level. What happens is if you get between 95 and 110 percent, then they go into a full count. I think the Secretary of State calls it a full check, but um, you know they essentially all it is is they go through every single signature and they check it. Right? It goes from extrapolating out on a one-to-one basis, less penalties, to actually checking every single signature. And what they what that happens at that point is the registrars are allowed an extra 30 working days, again, not biz, not calendar days, but working days to get that done. Um, so in the case where a full count is necessary, if you don't get that 110%, um, you will have flown well past the deadline.
0: So, you know, the the Secretary of State is the one who certifies these for, for their ballot. The counties are the ones who, who count the ballots. Is there any, I guess, vetting by the Secretary of State of, of the county's work or... Does the Secretary of State always take the county's word for it? Uh,
1: unless there's reason for the, the Secretary of State to take issue with the counties, he's going to defer to his kind of registrars. Um, they, and, you know, I registrars take their job seriously. Each one has a different approach. Um, you know, when I think... One of one of the Southern California, I don't want to name which counties right tell them, but I know that certain Southern California counties, like especially um in Southern California, they go through as many as seven different checks so if uh if the initial check falls through, if the first line of review says this signature doesn't match, well then it goes to another person, another worker who has to say whether or not they agree then it goes not gets gets up to the supervisor and the supervisor has access to other signature records right so it's not just what's on the the registration voter registration document but they can look at you know land deeds or um other registration documents that you've signed with the the county and compare maybe your signatures changed since you registered to vote at 18 right um and then if They look at all the signatures, don't agree, it gets passed on and passed on. And at the end of the day, the registrar, him or herself, actually does look at some signatures that have been rejected many times and has to make the decision based on all the signatures that this voter may have signed with the county, whether or not their signature matches. So there's a very intensive process.
0: Um, kind of touching back on the, the split role, you know, how they have two, I guess, initiatives pending right now. Um, could they decide to, to do one in 2020 and hold one for 2022 at this point? Uh,
1: now that they've submitted, I don't believe that they can. Um, they could have held signatures on the second one and decided to do it after the deadline so that they qualified for 2022. But as of right now, unless they pull one back... Uh, which would require them to do then a third round of signature gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be th- those two are going to qualify for November 2020, okay. assuming that this one that they submitted has a sufficient number of signatures.
0: Yeah. Uh, earlier, you were talking about this kind of new procedure that came in a few years ago with the 25% and the legislative hearings. Um, kind of, what is the legislative deadline for, I guess, negotiating some of these off? Those those are passed. Those have passed. So those, yeah. So, so those at were- this point, the legislature, um, you know, obviously is not having hearings any anymore. But, um, you know, I think, you know, maybe there's like a June, I thought there was like a June deadline for them to kind of maybe put initiatives um, of, of their own on the ballot. Yeah.
1: And that's, that's actually a big question that we've been debating inside of the firm right now is will the legislature take this opportunity to pass their own bills? You now there's, there's at least one bond measure that's making its way through, um, that will probably qualify for the ballot. Um, but with a very sparse field of initiatives on the ballot, it seems like it would be right for the legislature to put their own issues forward. Now there's That's obviously difficult, right? Not every assembly member is going to be in person in session, right? There are a number who don't want to be there because of health reasons. You know, Mark Salier had his own issues with COVID, right? So some people can't attend, aren't attending. Uh, So anytime there's anything controversial, it's probably going to be pretty difficult for them to get it through a full vote. But that would be something to watch, I think is what the legislature decides to do. And with the-, the
0: legislature, I guess, you know, to put an initiative for November, are they, you know, is it June or can they, you know, put something on in August or, or before the the end of the deadline? When is that? So they date? have
1: their, so early August is the deadline for the ballots to be set, but the legislature has its own deadline. I, I don't know it off the top of my head. I think you're right. It's in June okay. that the um, legislature has to pass through. And, you know, it does have to, go through the full process in order to make it to the ballot. So we will be seeing them fairly soon, I would imagine.
0: Now, at what point is is the ballot locked in, or can some of these initiatives, I guess, take their initiatives off? if they? You can't really take them off at this point if
1: they've been submitted. Um, I think they're they're set, I want to say August 7th or 17th, just off the top of my head. It's 88 days before the election is when the ballots are set um, that's usually a much bigger deal in local initiatives mm-hmm. um, because the way that it works at the local level is is much less regimented there are fewer parties involved um, you just have to get it before the city council or county or supervisors before that e-88 the uh, 88 days before the election so that they can vote
0: to to put it on the ballot or have it go on itself um, the, the split role, uh, campaign has been, you know, talked about on this podcast, a couple of times the last few weeks, uh, a lot of interest on that. Um, you know, have you seen a, a no campaign form on the, on that specific initiative yet?
1: I have not, although I anticipate that it has been discussed and the players are probably already ready to go.
0: Kind of, you know, the other side, I guess, political laws, the money, the speech kind of when, would you normally see a no campaign kind of gearing up to, I guess, line up to oppose these initiatives?
1: That's, that's another interesting question. Typically it would be after the June election, right? Um, But now that we've had our primary election, um, it is a new day. I, I would probably say everyone is in the mode of running campaigns beginning in late June, uh, starting their campaigns for the November election, but there's nothing saying that they can't get started right now. Um, it's probably, you know, there are pros and cons to starting now, right? If you're going to be doing digital ads, now is probably a pretty good time to be targeting people with digital ads because right. they're stuck around their computer. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you're not going to have the same effect um, that you would in, in jurisdiction by jurisdiction, right? If you're trying to turn, our, our firm is based in San Francisco, right? We do a lot of work on San Francisco initiatives, on San Francisco uh, candidates, that sort of thing. Campaigns in San Francisco are run door to door. It's still very local politics. Um, You still have to deal with canvassers uh, and that's just not possible right now. You know, people in San San Francisco don't really care about their Facebook ads, although they're on Facebook as much as anyone else. It's the way that you turn San Francisco is through democratic clubs, which have to meet and give their endorsements. Um, It's going door to door and handing out literature. You know, there, there are mailers, everyone does mailers and mailers are good. And they are just as effective in San Francisco as elsewhere, but it's just a different style of campaign. You know, LA is completely different from San Francisco, San Diego, even more different, right? Um, It's going to be, an interesting strategic decision on where and when campaigns start right now, especially I think split roll, which is going to have to turn certain jurisdictions rather than others.
0: Uh, you know, one interesting issue that's coming up is this November election. You know, will we be able to go out and physically vote? A lot of people are talking about, you know, it should just be a straight up male uh, election. Um, kind of a lot of people are opposed to, you know, an all male election kind of, kind of what are the, the legal uh, issues you're seeing with this November ballot coming up and, you know, people not being able to vote in person.
1: I would guess we're going to have an all mail election. Um, we have now several local counties that are using the new voting system. Um, Sacramento used it last election cycle. LA is supposed to use it for the first time this cycle. Essentially everyone gets a mail in ballot and you're going to have voting centers and you can go vote at these voting centers. Um, they may have something similar rolled out statewide and on an emergency basis. But um, with all of this lead time, with all of California's experience with vote by mail, which has been increasing quite a bit over the past few cycles, um, I th- I think that you're going to see an all vote by mail election in November.
0: What's some of the controversy around, you know, vote by mail? As you said, California has been voting by mail uh, for a long time, uh, mm-hmm. but there seems to be kind of, I guess, maybe it's more of a national conversation, but kind of like a lot of opposition to kind of this uh, all-male election?
1: It's tough. I mean, running an all-male election is
0: difficult. Uh, it
1: is difficult logistically for the registrars um, who need to take in all the the mail-in ballots and registers or verify signatures in the same way we talked about before, right? It is an individual sitting in front of a computer, holding up their envelope from the mail-in ballot and comparing the signature on the envelope to the signature on their screen. It's, it's time consuming. It's difficult. takes a long time. And as you know, California is famous for having elections take a long time to verify and people are getting kind of sick of it. Well, this is going to take a lot longer if everything is vote by mail. Right. The others are an increase in, We'll, we'll call it ballot access for vote-by-mail ballots, right? Um, very recently, just this last election cycle in 20, just 2018, the, we allowed what's called ballot harvesting, um, which is in the past when you filled out your vote-by-mail ballot, you were allowed to turn it in, right? You could go to the polling place, drop it in the box. You could turn it in to the mailbox, have it sent out. Now you can bring it to, you know, a local group that you're involved in and that group can collect all the ballots and turn them in, right? Um, If you are an active member of your union, you can go to your union meeting and turn in your your ballot, right? Right. Um, This raises a lot of not legal questions necessarily, right? But if you show up to a local political group that you're active in and you are filling out your ballot at this meeting, right? No one might tell you to fill out your ballot in one way or another. But the implied pressure of discussing endorsements and being having your ballot seen by the people to your left and right might pressure you to vote in a way that you might not have before.
0: I guess you could start seeing employers saying, okay, I have a thousand employees, let's all fill our ballots out together and turn them in together. Kind of Yeah. So there I mean there
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean there there are definitely rules on intimidating people into voting a certain way. You can't entice them, you can't give them money to vote certain ways. You can't give them anything of value to vote a certain way. Um, you can't intimidate them to vote a certain way. It's, it's just, but practically making sure that that doesn't happen gets increasingly difficult, especially when you, they, these people don't have an outlet to say, oh, well, I vote in person,
0: right? right? No pressure, wow. No pressure. Well, Nick, thank you so much for for joining us. It's been very interesting talking about these new issues coming up. It's going to be an interesting year. Um, you know, you want to give the listeners, uh, I guess, some of your information. So in case they have some questions, they can reach out to you or the wonderful folks at the Sutton Firm.
1: Sure. Um, so Sutton Law Firm, uh, based out of San Francisco, we have offices in L.A. and Sacramento as well. Uh, we are Our website is campaignlawyers.com. Uh, you can go check us out. Uh, if you want to reach out to to me specifically, my email address is n sanders as in Nick Sanders at campaignlawyers dot uh, And our main line, which can get to any of our offices, is four one five seven three
0: two seventy seven hundred. Great, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nick. Great talking with Thanks, you. Thanks,
1: sure. Jack. All right, well, good to we'll see, see
0: you. Later. Thanks. All right, bye. Our cold dream. Wow. ¿Ahí ¿Cómo ¿Cómo vamos a No, voy no, 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 no.